Shrink Wrap Radio number 875, UK Professor Matthew Smith on the mental health crisis in the U.S. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. And Shrink Wrap Radio is playing on again. Yeah. It's all in your head. It's all in your head. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. It's Shrink Wrap Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My London associate and blogger, Isabella Clark, steps in to conduct yet another interview. I really treasure Issy, and I hope you do too. She's an Oxford grad and a professional broadcaster. She reads widely in areas I don't cover. Consequently, she brings us high-quality guests I would not have known about. Now here's Issy with her latest find. Matthew Smith is Professor of Health History at the University of Strathclyde's Centre for the Social History of Health and Healthcare. He's the author of The First Resort, The History of Social Psychiatry in the United States, and has written or co-edited many other books on the history of mental health and psychiatry, food and nutrition, and allergy and immunology. Among these are the award-winning Hyperactive, The Controversial History of ADHD, and Another Person's Poison, A History of Food Allergy. Now... Here's the interview. Matt, thank you so much for agreeing to come on Shrink Wrap Radio. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, well, firstly, can you tell us how you came to be interested in the history of, of health and healthcare? Oh, boy, that, that's a very long story, but a lot of it boils down to a couple of years uh, where I was working for the YMCA in Edmonton, Alberta, in Canada. And uh, my job was to help troubled kids, kids who had dropped out of school and who were involved in gangs and, and drugs and all sorts of not very nice things. And um, one of the things that we would do uh, during the course of our interventions was try to give them access to provincial funding to go back to school. And one of the things we realized is that if we managed to identify these kids as having potentially having a disorder of one kind or another, they tended to get more get out of jail free cards when they messed up. <laughs> and so and the big one was ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And so at the time, you know, I didn't see anything wrong with this uh, because it it literally kept them in, you know, in accommodation and sometimes in school for longer. 
Um, but I have I eventually started to get curious as to why we were only really focusing on their brains and not all the social factors that were contributing to why they were seeing us in the first place. So those two years sparked an interest in ADHD, which led to more research on mental health um, and ultimately interest in some other things as well, food, nutrition, allergy, and immunology. And uh, yeah, just a, a lot of it focusing on you know, asking questions about why why we do things that we do when it comes to health and why don't why haven't we considered other options? That's a, that's a great story. And great it does, story. Um, it you can see the trajectory, the trajectory and how it made sense. I seem to be echoing. I don't know. Oh, it, it's 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 gone away. I hope hopefully okay. that won't intrude on the recording. Um, <laughs> you sound it, great on this end. Oh well, that's good. You I just heard it on my side, so okay. so hopefully hopefully that's not coming through. Um, but before we dig into the details of the article that I originally read in in the conversation, which was a fascinating article, um, just a brief explanation of why you believe that understanding history can actually help so much. I understand how it became part of your story, but why do you think it matters? Yeah, OK, that's that's a really important question. It matters because for a couple of reasons, one it helps to understand why we do what we do. So in the case of mental health and psychiatry, if you look at just even the past, say, 50 or 60 years, we have different approaches, different explanations, and different treatments for mental health problems emerging. We have psychoanalysis, which is very uh dominant say 50 60 years ago we have the emergence of biological explanations and and all sorts of bodily treatments uh ranging from ect and insulin shock therapy and lobotomy and drugs of course and then we have all sorts of social explanations um looking at the social de determinants of mental health and then we have lots of people saying hold on here, I don't think I'm mad or mentally disordered at all. I think it's society that's, that's making me feel this way. So in order to understand why these different explanations come and go, it's very important to look at the history behind them. So if you want to understand why psychoanalysis becomes so dominant in the United States during the middle of the 20th century, we have to know about the Holocaust and the Third Reich, because many Jewish psychoanalysts from Central Europe had to leave, including Freud himself. And many of them ended up in the United States and Canada and England and, and other parts of the West, uh, of, you know, outside Central Europe. They bring their ideas with them and they become quite dominant. So if you don't, if you don't have an understanding of the history, you don't know why psychoanalysis becomes such an important uh, concept and idea. Equally, if you want to know why something like lobotomy becomes an acceptable uh, treatment for people during the middle of the 20th century, you need to know something about how psychiatrists 
felt that they were rooted in the asylum. They weren't really seen as doctors. They were just superintendents of asylums. You know, they weren't seen as being on the cutting edge of medicine. I mean, pardon, pardon the pun. Um, but with when lobotomy emerges in the 1930s and 40s, it is seen as cutting edge. These people are doing brain surgery, you know, and they see it as we're entering medicine, we're becoming respectable and authoritative and like a legitimate medical discipline. We'll get the best medical students entering psychiatry, not the worst, you know? So if so, that's the one thing. In, in order to understand why certain things come about and become uh, popular or uh, authoritative, you, you need to know their history. I think the other thing, and this is the other side of the coin, and this is more looking to the future, if you know those stories, it empowers you to make different choices and to make different decisions. So if you knew, if you know that, um, for example, uh, something serendipitous happened that led to the and well, a lot of the, the psychiatric drugs that are now used were discovered very serendipitously, like in, tuberculosis. In, uh, yes, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So the, the so once you know that, and you know that while well, things could have gone down a different path, you're I think you're empowered to say, okay, here we are now dealing with a lot what a lot of people think is a mental health crisis. What what could we do to do things differently? And then it maybe empowers people to go down a different path and think of things differently. Um, so. For me, I think there's been a tendency in history sometimes just to say, well, things are complex and leave it at that, partly because I came to history trying to understand working in a more you know, educational, clinical environment. I've always been motivated by using history to make a difference in some some way, um, so uh, I hope I hope that answers it. But yeah, I think it's it's partly to know where you've been, but also to empower you to change where you're going. It strikes me actually. It's I'm also very also very interested in ecology, and it strikes me that in understanding an ecosystem, um, you need to know the history of it. You need to know that those species were brought in, perhaps um, you know, on a ship in the 1890s, and that they then spread from New York to wherever. And you you have this same kind of understanding of how things got where they are and why you know perhaps some species um became a, a became a, a trouble in in a certain environment you need to know how it got there and um and it also has the same benefit of allowing well you know you have to be careful about your um about a sort of bio um security if you're going to prevent sort of fungal diseases to trees for example coming in in the future so you have that you have that same that that same way of thinking working in, in many different spheres don't you it totally mm, yeah sense. yeah and i think the other thing is that it also gives especially in medicine i think it, it can create uh, a sense of humility and a willingness to not just accept the thing, this is the epoch, this is the zenith of knowledge and we know everything. And, you know, um, I mean, maybe we'll talk a bit more about this, but I, I think, you know, some of the physicians working 500 years ago, 
with within the paradigm of humoral medicine, I think some of their concepts of balance and lifestyle are eminently <laughs> applicable wow. today. You know, um, I mean, they knew far more about nutrition than most doctors know today, for example. And I mean, it was understood in different terms, but in, in the sense of if you eat certain things, it will have an effect on your on your physical and your mental health. They were much, much more in tune with those sort of things. And, and that, that connects with ecology as well, I guess. Mm. Yeah, so I'm thinking of Indigenous communities, but also Ayurvedic medicine um, and, you know, the understanding of, well, and isn't it something crazy, like, you know, 70% of our medicines are, are, are from plant roots anyway, and um, and to have that, you know, that understanding dates back absolutely centuries um, and it's really only in recent years that we've sort of justified folk beliefs by having a sort of scientific inquiry that's gone into, oh, actually, there is a, you know, there is, it, willow bark does have this, um, something that's very similar to aspirin in it or, mm -hmm. or that is that's very interesting. Um, in, so let's let's sort of focus in on on the article now. First of all, the title. When I when I said to Dr. Dave that I was really keen to interview you, and the title's called um, the title was "How to Solve the Mental Health Crisis," and he said, "Wow, that's ambitious." <laughs> so so um, yeah, it's definitely an ambitious title. I don't know if it was the um, the the editors who put that in or whether you'd have chosen that the editors <laughs> yeah yeah that was not well I've, <laughs> I've worked with the conversation a few times and I know when you know when, when to let them have their say and with things <laughs> like titles often that's uh you know that that's what catches people's attention if it was called something not so provocative no one would have read it I guess <laughs> <laughs> well it certainly it certainly provoked me to read it so, um, so first of one of we'll go through, go through sort of chronologically in our in our sort of history, and one of the things I was really interested in was the idea of nineteenth century um, asylums, and we think of this, them as these nightmarish madhouses. But you suggest that's not quite right, and a quotation from the article: "Such portrayals mask the impressive ambition, care, and expense that went into the building of many asylums by governments around the world during the nineteenth century." And I thought that was very interesting. What did you take from from um, from nineteenth century asylums and the portrayal of them? Yeah, so asylums have been understood in different ways. So many uh, historians have seen them as tools for social control, and I think that's true to a very sig significant extent. But I think it's also important to view them as a product of the of Enlightenment thinking. Um, and the Enlightenment wasn't just about, you know, retreating or getting away from religious and uh, spiritual explanations for phenomenon. It was also uh, an optimistic attitude towards uh, solving the world's problems. So, you know, if you tackle social problems with scientific uh expertise and determination you can you can solve them and i think the asylum is is part of that that uh that attitude and enthusiasm i suppose for you know sound it might sound uh, trite but making the world a better place and so if you look at many of the asylums that emerge in the late 18th and especially during the 19th century you know these are 
places, first of all, that are meant to replace worse <laughs> places. So the workhouse, the poorhouse, and prisons primarily, where many people who would have uh, been suffering from various mental ills would have been found prior to that. So an example of that is the uh, Montrose Royal Asylum up in uh, up on the east coast of Scotland. And uh, it was founded uh, by uh, uh, Susan Carnegie. Uh, so it's a very much a philanthropic enterprise. And it's it's definitely an early example of moral therapy so she wants is you she wants the patients to be treated well and she wants them to be have opportunities to you know do occupational therapy to do art therapy um and she wants the doctors that work there to you know treat their job seriously to be you know staying at the asylum for extended periods of time rather than going from place to place and it's it's part of this effort to try to to, to cope with um, social problems, you know, that are that are uh, affecting towns and, and cities in places like Scotland and, and England. So I think the other the other way to think about it is just looking at literally looking at the asylum as a building. You know, these are impressive buildings. In many, many places, the asylum would have been the grandest building around apart from ch a church or a cathedral. Um, so, you know, why, why are they made like that? And, and even when they start building uh, the district asylums and the county asylums, so these are the public asylums, you know, funded by largely public money and uh, maintained through public monies, these are often very impressive buildings as well, you know, and I think part of that, it isn't just because the superintendents, you know, managed to convince them to put all this money into the asylum. It's because there seem to be important places um, that are, you know, meant to, meant to help people. Um, and when you look at asylum records, although, you know, problems emerge almost almost immediately you know as soon as asylum is built all of a sudden there's more patients and there are you know beds there's problems with funding problems with hanging on to staff you know but that doesn't take away and that that is often what leads to the deplorable conditions and certainly some of the conditions are absolutely deplorable and in, in asylums throughout the world but i don't think anyone builds an asylum in the 19th century expecting it to become deplorable right away they're they're building it i think they build them largely with good intentions it's just that you know those those intentions aren't, aren't always maintained by resources and and in some you know there, there are the other thing that's important to note is that there are different asylums you know some asylums they use restraint and coercion and force and uh, there's abuse at far higher levels than there are in other asylums. So, and we see that today in psychiatric facilities as well. Um, well, not, not hopefully not uh, some of those things so much, but, you know, you, you might recall the Panorama documentary of mm -hmm. last year, you know, where, yeah, that those sort of things continue. So, um so I think I think that's important to note is that you know, these these places were initially intended to be places for good, um, 
And you know, the, the, if 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 we think of them in that way, then then we I think we it, it it's a way to uh, perhaps um, reconsider you know the image of the asylum as you as you I think rightly say how most people see it. We've just had Halloween, and you know I think many people see them as being scary, frightening places, and they would have been for many. But for, I think for other people, they would have been uh, asylums in the true sense of the word. Yes, that is it. As you were talking, um, sort of two things came to mind. One was, and I don't know if I'm just, um, if this leapt into my mind from a, a sort of a, a false connection, but did in the 20th century, did sort of Wilfred Owen and some of the shell shocked um, soldiers go to, was that the one in Montrose? I mean, I know, I'm sure it was somewhere in Scotland that they went to. Yes, Craig Lockhart. Ah, uh, Craig Lockhart. That's it. That's yeah. it. Yes, and that well, and and the the treatment there sounded as if it was as if it was very good treatment. Uh, but of course, mm. that was that was some time later. The other thing I was thinking was that um, I remember reading Michel Foucault's book on madness and civilization, and that very much has the idea of the um, the concept of control and separation yeah. rather than this idea of of nurturing in a safe haven. So that it it kind of depends on the onlooker's perspective how you read the history of, of asylums and, and also the fact that they varied. Yeah, absolutely. So I was doing some research in Inverness recently on the Inverness District Asylum, and there uh, they were very keen, and in other Scottish asylums, they were very keen to board out patients, so get patients living back in the community. And these aren't patients that were recovered. These were patients that were still ill. Um, now, sometimes they were doing, and this is, it's a nuanced, complex story. So sometimes they were doing it because it was cheaper to do that. But in the records, there's also an acknowledgement that, you know, people, especially, you know, Highlanders in, 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 in the Inverness District Asylum, they did not want to be cooped up in the asylum. They'd much rather be living with families. So, um, you know, that's that particular practice in terms of how we see the asylum it kind of makes those walls a lot more porous <laughs> than than Foucault would have it um so it, yeah I think it's important to look at the individual cases as well and and see how they differ um uh but you know I think I think certainly Foucault and his, his idea of social control is, is really important in terms of thinking about not just not just the asylum, but you know how we prescribe or how how we diagnose people with various disorders. Yes, yes, I wanted to get onto that, but I, one of the things that the the asylum does bring up when in your conversation there, when you're talking about county asylums and district asylums, is the idea of the public responsibility. There seems to be a very strong sense of a public responsibility, not a rather than a rather than a private one in that era. Yeah, definitely. So there, there are private asylums where people pay money to, to go, um, but there are also a lot of uh, 
by the mid 19th century, there are, there are more and more district and, and county asylums, and those are you know those are mainly funded through the public purse. Um, but you know, also you do get wealthy benefactors chipping in as well. So again, up in Inverness, you have local estate owners will you know donate uh, venison for the kitchens, for example, or they'll um, sometimes will take. Uh, patients out on day trips and and that sort of thing. Uh, bands come in and play for the asylum uh, patients. So it there there is a to and fro between the community, and it, that that reflects, I think, not just the fact that these you know that that it isn't maybe not as feared in the community sometimes as as we think, but also that you know people recognize that. Although this is apart, you know, apart from the community, it, it is also in some ways part of the community. Right. Also, we have, you know, and part of that is that their asylums are big employers. They employ many, many people. Um, so there is that kind of, like I said, kind of a porous uh, sense that we don't always uh, take into take into account. Um, and you know, people would have supported the asylum, you know, through taxes and, and the rates, uh, but also, like I said, wealthier people might contribute as well in some ways. Um, moving on to a sort of slightly different area, in the article you brought up the history of Pellagra and um, and explain why why understanding that is, is important or relevant. Could you give us an idea of what you drew from that and, and what is Pellagra and why why, right. why is it relevant to this story? Yeah. So pellagra is a vitamin deficiency disease. It happens when you don't have enough niacin and it it was prevalent in certain parts of the world, uh, most notably the southern United States and parts of southern Europe, especially northern Italy, where uh, corn had been introduced as a cash crop and where poor populations had to rely on corn and corn, if it's not processed in, in the right way, does not allow uh, for the take up of niacin. So these, uh, so, so the first thing I guess to say is that this is an example, uh, and sorry, I should say that pellagra initially uh, affects certain parts of the body. Eventually, it'll it'll affect the brain, and it leads to uh, insanity, basically. So, in in the southern United States and in northern Italy, for example, the asylums were filled with pellagrins, pellagra sufferers. So, what this tells us one is that the causes of mental illness are not always as straightforward as you might think, right? This is, you know, who would think a vitamin deficiency would lead to madness, but also pellagra fundamentally is a disease of poverty. It's a disease that only affected the poor uh, because people that had money enough to have a more diverse diet would have enough niacin to prevent it. So it's a really interesting example uh, of a of a of a cause of of mental illness that really gets us to think in a more open-minded way about potential causes for mental illness but also back to kind of one of the most basic things in the history of of mental illness and that is that you know poor people are most 
desperately affected by mental illness, both in terms of, you know, more susceptible to it, but also um, having some of the not having access to the best treatment. I, I guess it's sort of syphilis to a certain extent is is in some ways similar, although um, not strictly a, a disease of poverty, but probably a disease of um, you know, unfortunate women um, who were forced onto the streets, they was, were going to be more likely to be sufferers of syphilis too. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and in asylums towards the end of the 19th and early 20th century, um, depending on where you were, the three of the main causes would have been pellagra, syphilis, and then alcohol-induced psychosis. So free, wow. all preventive causes totally preventable and that would be the that would be the majority of the people within those asylums in certain asylums that would be that would account wow. for a lot of the patients an awful lot of the patients it, it would you know it would depend where you were obviously pellagra mm, mm. is not going to be a factor in in britain um but there would have been a lot of the other cases of, of syphilis and um alcohol induced psychosis as well so um it just i think it makes us open our minds a little bit in terms of the factors that can contribute to poor mental health so the people who when they came to the understanding of these things was it then and in the early 20th century that there was much more focus on preventative um preventative medicine within the mental health sphere yeah, so generally there was, and there were a couple reasons for this. One was that there wasn't much in the way of treatment. <laughs> um, you know, this is long before the modern psychiatric drugs. It's before ECT, electroshock uh, therapy. It's it before, well, I mean, there would have been versions of psychotherapy in the early 20th century, and psychoanalysis was, was up and running by that point. Um, but, you know, if, if you were in an asylum, um, there weren't all that many treatment options open to you, apart from things like hydrotherapy um, of various kinds, occupational therapy, so work therapy, and maybe if you're lucky, some, you know, types of moral therapy, so access to playing music or art or those sorts of things. But in terms of, you know, what we think of as as treatments there wasn't that much so that's the one one factor uh, if you if you wanted to reduce the number of people going into asylums you needed to, to prevent it because once those people were in the asylum they were probably going to stay in there for a while but the other thing is that a bit like the enlightenment the turn of the 20th century especially in the united states um is an era of progress uh, is the progressive era so it's an era of again kind of faith in our ability to do things differently to do things better and and many people jump on board including you know many wealthy philanthropists who fund uh various types of uh initiatives geared towards you know preventing ill health including mental ill health um, you you write in the article about, and I suppose this is it's not in the early twentieth century, but it uh, maybe stems from a sort of similar cause, the nineteen sixty three Community Health Act. And why yeah. is that relevant to your to your um, analysis? Yeah, so for the first half of the twentieth century, 
Um, there are, uh, there's a mental hygiene movement and a child guidance movement. And these are both focusing on mental health. They both tend to be preventative and they're both rooted in the idea that there are social determinants of mental health. They didn't, they didn't have that terminology, but that, that was basically what they were thinking. Many of these initiatives or most of these initiatives tend to be funded through, uh, private philanthropy. So the Rockefellers, for example, in the United States, uh, fund a lot of mental hygiene and child guidance initiatives. After the second, during and after the Second World War, however, this really puts the spotlight on mental illness even further. So going into the Second World War, the United States in particular embarks upon a, a very aggressive psychiatric screening uh, regime for recruits. They do not want to have recruits suffering, going to crack Lockhart or the equivalent in the United States, suffering from shell shock or combat fatigue or whatever term they were going to call it. So they end up rejecting one million applicants um, to the army on psychiatric grounds alone. Despite that, they end up having a million admissions to hospital for psychiatric reasons. So all of this raises the raises concerns about mental illness, not just within the military context, but within American society more generally. And so this is when you get the foundation of the National Institute of Mental Health, and you start to get a, a, a gradual buildup of, of funding and resources to try to investigate what why why mental illness exists so psychiatric epidemiology all of this really culminates in 1963 in the community mental health act which is the first time the federal government in the united states uh invested significantly in mental health prior to that it was all down to the states and it would be very you know there are 50 different states all with very different approaches and different ideologies uh, so you, you got all sorts of different uh, outcomes. After 1963, this is this is a, a significant investment in mental health from the federal government, and it sees a shift from the asylum, which we were talking about earlier, to community mental health, so to treating people in the community, but also crucially prevention. Uh, the Community Mental Health uh, Act was meant to be a preventative approach as well as a, a clinical approach in terms of treating people. Um, so it's very, it's very significant in terms of it signifies a moment when preventing mental illness is seen to be very, very important and something that taxpayers should contribute to, even in the United States, where you know getting taxes out of people isn't always the easiest thing to do. Um, but I think it also represents and this is something I'm interested in researching further, I think it also represents a culmination of, of really a 50, 60 year period from the early 20th century of a lot of people working individually and in groups trying to do the same thing, trying to uh, explore the social uh, and environmental aspects of mental illness to, to look to, and to look to preventative solutions. 
it seems as if prevent the preventative solutions tend to be seen on a sort of social or community um, level, whereas now the focus on treatment and you know I would assume. To, to a great extent in an asylum as well, but certainly now the focus on treatment is very much the individual, and there seems to be something of a it, it, something of a misfit there. If if causes are so often social, then how can treatment function perfectly on an individual level? Yeah, so this I think this is a, a real paradox because as as I was saying with. Pellagra. I mean, Pellagra gives a perfect example of how, on one hand, it's a poverty issue. Poverty is causing it. But on the other hand, you have a very specific cause that's only going to affect certain people in certain parts of the world. So I think with mental illness, we often have to think, you know, um, we have to have two, two ideas in our head at the same time. Um, but I think that doesn't happen a lot in mental health circles and unfortunately in mental health policy, it's usually one idea that dominates. And so after the second world war and the community mental health act really uh, symbolizes this, there's a shift of population mental health to dealing with mental health or mental illness on a population level and coming up with, if not, you know, significant, social change, at least with um, the intention that we should be changing society in ways to make it better for mental health. What happens in the 1970s and 80s is partly due to uh, shifts in the political landscape, uh, economic uh, decline, and also uh, developments within psychiatry itself, we have a shift back to looking at individual uh, individual uh, explanations and solutions for mental health. Uh, and I mean, there's, it's, it's no surprise that this happens during the 70s, which is known as the me decade, you know, uh, and, we, and we, we get this not just in terms of you know, mainstream psychiatry, you also get this in, in radical psychiatry. So you get all sorts of really idiosyncratic therapies coming up, you know, like scream therapy or, you know, LSD treatment. And, you know, some of these things are coming back. Um, but it, but what's important is that it's not, it's no longer, let's deal with society, let's focus on you. <laughs> and so I think, especially with, um the challenges that we've been facing or many people have been facing in the last 15 years with austerity, with COVID especially, and the most recently, the, you know, the cost of living crisis, I think, you know, we're starting to maybe come back a little bit to um, the the population solutions. And I think the other thing is that we, we've got well, many, many decades worth of, of, of evidence to suggest that you know, this, the pharmaceutical solutions and psychotherapy, you know, they might work, work for some people, but it's very difficult to roll that out for absolutely everybody, you know, so, you know, we need to, rather than just focus on the treatment, we need to go back to trying to stem the number of people dealing with these problems in the first place, um, which, you know, ironically, in a way, for most of the 20th century was the the thinking, you know, was was prevention, it was public mental health, community mental health. It's only really been in the last, you know, 40 or 
40 years or so where this shift back to the individual uh, has has dominated yeah there's so many so many things uh, arise when um when i'm here you hear you talking and it um don't know which bits to um to pursue <laughs> pursue you on first um on the on the subjects of the individual, I was thinking also about the um, you know personal empowerment and you know very much this idea of personal development movements, and you still see that you still see that a lot. I mean, I read I read some books that were sort of highly critical of the idea that um, you know it's kind of all in your mind and that you know if mm. you think in a better way and if you become a more effective person and if you do this, you can you can stop being you know x or y that can be that can be in that can actually make it harder or make it worse because you feel like a failure as well as as well as having the problems that you already have um and and i wonder i wonder what you think of the you know because i think there's still a lot of that particularly in particularly in um in in sort of the uh, consumer culture on TikTok, Instagram, those kind of areas. Yeah, I, I, I think that even extends to fairly well-established approaches such as mindfulness, such as you know yoga, um, changing diet. You know, these things are all well and good if you have the time and resources to engage with them properly. You know, if you're if you're the if you're from a uh, demographic where you're, you know, working multiple jobs, where you're, you know, juggling childcare responsibilities, where you, you, where your load of worry and stress is that much higher because your bills are, are, are more, much more of a existential threat, and on all those sort of things, not only do these personal therapies need to do a lot more work, if you know what I mean but you're also going to be less able to take advantage of them. So um, I think that that's the other, that's the other side of it. And I think, you know, these days they're, they're probably, although some of these like concepts like mindfulness pretty, pretty well established. Um, some of the things that do come through social media certainly might not be. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting right now is that we also have, this, this, I think, quite helpful concept of neurodiversity and this idea that, you know what, we are different. I, I might have different uh, abilities to concentrate and to focus on things than other people. Um, and so rather than forcing people to, to change for uh, societal norms, maybe we try to make society a bit more accommodating. And yeah, certainly working at a university, we, we do that. You know, we, people have disabilities and, and uh, different learning disabilities. We do make accommodations for them. So I think, um, yeah, it's, I think it's good in a way for people to understand how they're different, why they're different, and to come up with strategies to deal with that, but we also have to recognize that not everyone is in a place to do that. And we can make society, you know, if, if society was a bit more forgiving, <laughs> a bit more supportive, um, a bit more egalitarian, then some of these uh, approaches, which probably have quite a lot of value, um, could be employed more readily. So, <clears throat> 
you know, um, this extends not just to, I guess, kind of psychological therapies or social, but also things like social prescribing. So, you know, your your physician might say, why why don't you go for a walk in, in up in the hills and clear your head? Well, you know, do you have access to those hills? Mm. You know, um, do you have access to walking boots, you know, that can get you there? Uh, do you have access to the education to help you navigate yourself when, when you're up there? So, you know, we have to look at these things in a much more holistic way if we want them to benefit the people that really need those benefits. Yes, that's that's that is a very important point. And I, I was I was also thinking when you were talking about neurodiversity and I was wondering one of the one of the people um, that um, that Dr. Dave interviewed before, and I I've got his book, but I still, I haven't read it. Um, Nobody's normal. He was talking about um, the idea that you know we we are all sort of very diverse, and that in the past, some being different might not have been quite so different. It it feels to me as if there's a, a huge drive in our sort of weird Western educated, industrial, um, rich and democratic cultures to kind of homogenize our experience to an extent that this is the way that you see the world, that, you know, that you are strange if you if you sort of X, Y and Z. And I wonder if that, um, you know, I personally feel that that's that that's unhealthy and unhelpful, um, you, but partly with maybe the suggestion of long ago history as a guide. Um, but also I read a book recently by a guy, Jerome Bernstein, called On the Borderland or something, where he's talking about mm. people who have um, people who have sort of different experiences as and I think he he was maybe going a little bit far in suggesting that there's a sort of you know a a kind of more of an ecological openness that the sort of future requires but certainly I do think that there's a lot there's a lot more diversity were we willing to accept it as individuals within our own minds and that and that 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 diversity within our own minds may actually embrace areas that are usually categorized as being a you know a, a disorder mm. yeah, yeah a friend of mine when I told him I was writing a book on preventing mental illness or the history of preventing mental illness he quipped well if you want to prevent mental mental illness just stop di- diagnosing it so much and and that that's it's a, yeah, it's a bit of a, a flippant comment, but there is something to the effect of, um, you know, wh- why do we pathologize people who are a bit different and why don't we value them more? Um, and I'm, you know, I, I think I'm with you. I think that I think we need people, especially if you want to tackle the existential problems that we're facing, like climate change, uh, we need people who not only can think differently, but are willing to act differently. Um, you know, I, I work in a university and part of it is because I am from another country where things are done slightly differently. I'm always, and this, and this is another <laughs> answer to your question, well, why history is helpful. History, historians ask why questions. So, you know, we're always, well, why? It's like a four-year-old, you know, who's always pestering you. Why is the sky blue? Why, why, why is this? Why is that? But, you know, why questions are also disruptive. 
You know, they're asking, they're challenging questions. And so in a university, I'm always asking these disruptive why questions. And it's hard. It's kind of exhausting to have to always ask these questions and not get satisfactory mm -hmm. answers. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you're, if you're neurodivergent and you look at the world in a different way and you're wondering well why do we do things like this mm. you know why and you're not and and maybe if you can't express yourself in a, in a way that, that that's effective it's very frustrating and unfortunately we're frustrating the very people that probably have the solutions to some of these big problems that we face you know um so i think um yeah i mean I think it's very useful to, to 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 ask those blue sky questions and and you know um, in all sorts of different contexts and, and it almost you know again it's if you're in a position of privilege it's much easier to do so but you know, that that's something that I think you know we could build much more into our school system you know get get getting kids to be disruptive and challenging in a positive way you know questioning why we do things the way we do and and i think a lot of those questions would probably at some point meander back to mental health <laughs> you know it's, inter I mean. it's interesting what you say about schools because i remember speaking to someone um from the netherlands and i'd always thought that all the people from the netherlands that i'd met had been very sort of um very sort of straight not combative but it, it but um you know asking you know didn't accept just d didn't accept something as said you know would ask and he said oh that's that's it happens in schools you know we are we're taught not to just you know soak things up but to question to ask and um and I thought that's well, that's very interesting. And the the work that um, I do some sort of academic work in the area of um, um, animals and the environment, and um, there's a lot of there's a lot of very progressive thinking on 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 that score from Europe in general, the continental Europe in general. But there do seem to be a lot of people from the Netherlands who are willing to think, you know, and I imagine it's probably there's probably sort of similar structures within within Scandinavian countries um, and and just as a sort of different way of different way of um, approaching the idea of education as rather as being something that the child um, the child discovers for themselves rather than is handed yeah yeah definitely um and in a way that, that kind of gets back to why i got into all this in the first place because one of the reasons adhd emerges is because education in the united states shifts from being much more progressive and child-centered to much more teacher and subject-centered because of the cold war you know so again you know we don't we don't if we know this we can decide, well, we can do things in a different way. And, and certainly the other aspect is, yeah, understanding that other countries have different approaches and, and maybe they're doing things better than us. <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned earlier that um, there were two things that I wanted to, um, to see before your three preventative strategies, which obviously are, are of key importance at, <laughs> at the end. Um, one of the things you mentioned was was about um, diagnosis 
and and the other was your particular interest in um in nutrition and understanding of the past and i wondered if you just wanted the opportunity to to um explore that a little bit here uh sure so i think in terms of diagnosis i suppose it comes back again to this idea of who defines what normal is and why do they define it in the way they do and to all always be you know questioning that i mean even when we think about the various iterations or editions of the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders you know the psychiatrist debate and argue about this all the time. Certainly, you know, when DSM-5 came out, there were huge debates about how depression should be diagnosed how, and, and other things. And some things come in, some things come out. So I think understanding that that happens and that that is not, that's actually a good thing, you know, so that it's, it's not simply, um, you know, the idea that, we need to identify the flaws in the human character and stick, you know, make sure that we weed them out. You know, I think it's more about disorders reflect the societies that they're found in, you mm -hmm. know, and that mm -hmm. when we're not happy with society, maybe that says a bit like, you know, R.D. Lang said, you know, mad to be normal, um, you know, kind of flipping the, the mirror around a little bit and just, um, what was the other thing? Sorry, nutrition. Oh, nutrition. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 I mean, I've personally. I mean, I think that is it is just sort of so interesting. I mean, just on the gut body axis, I, you know, the gut brain axis, isn't it? Yeah. The, you know, and the the fact I know there's um, there was some research done into hunter gatherers, and the hunter gatherers the is the huge variety of different strains in their gut bioflora or bio gut bio biota was just incredible. Whereas most people eating a kind of more of a processed food diet, um, it's it's a lot more limited. And even you know I'm I'm vegan and I eat a lot of vegetables. I mean really I I, I don't tend to buy processed food. I I make my own food and it's basically vegetables but i'm still aware that you know i'm probably eating you know maximum 20 different vegetables throughout the course of the year or maybe 30 and mm -hmm. you know had i been had i been sort of like foraging around i'd be forced into eating sort of 50 70 you know different types of you know, leafy berry things and it 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 does strike you how incredibly not just unhealthy but limited our diets probably are yeah, and so there's that aspect, and there's also concern about what we do eat, mm. you know, in terms of not just the, uh, you know, too much fat, too much sugar, the things that we're told all the time, but all the chemicals that we consume as well. And, you know, my, my PhD was on you know, food additives and, and, and hyperactivity in children. So, and that, that idea goes back decades and decades and decades. So, um, you know, I think it's... It, it is uh it's something that for a long time for a long time going back a long ways people interest physicians and, and just people interested in mental health would have taken for granted that your food has an impact on your mental health and really for the last well quite a quite a long period we've forgotten that and only now we're starting to come back to it um, which which is good 
but of course, you know, if I guess if you're if you're struggling, <laughs> you know, to, to get as much uh, of these different uh, plant-based foods into your diet, is he? Um, then you know a lot of people are really struggling. I guess so. Um, I think it's it's important to marry the the social economic side to the scientific side um, if we yes. want to if we want this to become something that actually makes a difference. No, you're entirely right because uh, you know eating eating a sort of like vegan diet with enough you know nuts in it is is not cheap. I mean you know if you're going to eat i mean people say oh well you know vegetables are vegetables are cheap well they are cheap if you want if you're going to eat sort of and i know it's good to eat seasonal produce that's locally sourced but by the same token that would mean in the winter i'd be eating potatoes and cabbages basically for six months (laughs) i don't know that i or my digestive system could take that but if i and if i were on a you know on a sort of a more limited income then getting a sort of appropriate tradition nutrition and without that working three jobs in a day yeah and you know the affordability of food the idea of being able to have something that's you know that's healthy and varied is just a real challenge and i think that is it's a huge problem and it's a far more important problem than people realize yeah i i I think that's very true And, and just recognizing what you just said about the you know, there's a time and 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 skill implications as well. You know, it's it's one thing getting a cabbage; it's another thing figuring out how you're gonna <laughs> deal with this thing to make it <laughs> yeah. tasty. <laughs> yeah, if you can with a cabbage, but <laughs> I'm version of cabbages. Um, sorry, <laughs> you're at the end of the article. You suggest three preventative strategies, three ways to to solve the mental health crisis. But right. but, but they, uh, I mean they do seem to me to be wonderful strategies and i wish that um you know all governments in the world now listen to to you explore them <laughs> listen up governments <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so tell us them right so the three that um i i focus on here um are intended really i think they're the ones that we get the biggest bang for our buck to put it that way um and and I, they're not the only things that we could do, but I think they're the three things that would make a big difference and would clear up researchers, clinicians, and social workers and other people to tackle the other causes of, of mental health problems that can be really difficult to deal with. So the first one is uh, universal basic income as a way to lift people out of poverty, to reduce inequality, uh, to, pro- to, to promote uh, social interaction and, and community building. Um, these were all, th- the lack of those things, so, so you know, having uh, poverty or poverty, inequality, social isolation and community di- disintegration were all the factors that uh, social psychiatrists and psychiatric epidemiologists identified as being particularly harmful to mental health when these sort of topics were researched in earnest during the middle of the 20th century. Um, So we've known this for a long time. We just haven't really done much. In fact, in many ways, like with austerity, we seem to be going in the opposite direction. So I think UBI, uh, it might not be the perfect solution, but it's the best solution that I have seen to tackle these things, which are the core social determinants of mental illness. So that's number one. Uh, the next one 
relates to what we were saying about food. So a really taking what science is starting to tell us now and what history would, would have told us a lot longer before that about the relationship between food and mental health and basically work at making good, healthy food affordable and getting rid of all the, the bad stuff. You know, and I, by bad stuff, I would start with chemicals. Um, and a lot of this, again, is that these are socioeconomic interventions. The reason we have preservatives in food is to lower their cost. You know, these are, if, if, if we if we're able to structure our lives a bit more around food and healthy food, then this would make a big impact, um, not only our physical health, but our mental health. And remember that physical health and mental health are, as one social psychiatrist put it in 1962, hopelessly intertwined. And I mean, that's absolutely true. If, if you're dealing with mental health problems, your physical health is going to suffer. Many people deal, dealing with physical health problems suffer from mental illness as well as a result. So that's number two. And then the final thing, again, relates to what you're saying about ecology, and that's access to nature mm-hmm. um, in various ways and, and physical activity in nature. Um, this is something that um, I think we all know intuitively, um, but during the pandemic in particular, people talked about how, you know, when they, when they were forced to go outside, you know, because we weren't able to go outside, when we were able to go outside, we really enjoyed it. And we had that beautiful spring and, you know, the birds were singing and, and people just seemed to recognize all this beauty and wonder that was around them that most of the time we don't recognize because we're so busy with our, our lives. So if people were given more opportunity to engage with nature and not not just in you know kind of utilizing nature but actually engaging with nature one of my favorite things to do is eco-volunteering so i go up and into the scottish hills and i plant trees and i i root out invasive species that's what i do too i do the same i do the same and i it's it's that it's probably when I feel the happiest in a way, because it's it's enjoyable, it's nice physical activity, and it makes it feel like I'm doing my part, a little thing to make the world a better place. So, um, you know, there's there's lessons in all these three things. And, you know, if there was political will, we could do a lot on these three things. And I'm, I'm, I'm as convinced as I am about most things uh, that uh, that they would make a big difference in alleviating or in preventing mental illness, but also helping people already dealing with mental illness as well. Uh, there's a really, in fact, on the last one, there's a really good podcast on the BBC. It is called, I think, Almanac for Anxiety. And the Helen Needham looks at five, five elements plus soil and how people engage with these things to deal with their mental health. It is, it's brilliant. Each episode is only about 20 minutes, but I highly recommend it. Oh, that's brilliant. So, so soil, fire, water, um, air. air, and... Wood, no. Um, wood, metal. yes, wood. Oh, wood. Wood. <laughs> wood, yeah. Wood. That's, what I was, that's what I was doing yesterday. Um, 
I was coppicing, which which presumably is something that you might be familiar with. So hazel, um, it, it was something that um, used to be done a great deal in this country, that hazel, you can cut it back when it's like one stem and it grows into many, many stems. And it used to be in, in I, I'm not sure if it's English or in British woodlands, the woodlands that we had remaining in the 1880s was was 50% coppiced woodland and 50% high canopy. And our native species are particularly adapted for dealing with this coppice woodland because in their traditional um, landscape, there would have been big herbivores going do, going through, breaking open bits of the woodland. So you didn't have a majority of sort of dense woodland. You had this kind of mosaic. And by the time, by now, only 3% of our woodland is actually coppiced woodland. So it feels like something, sorry, this isn't, this isn't meant to be a, a, a sort of conservation podcast, but so yesterday <laughs> I was, there was a very overgrown coppice and I was, you know, sawing down these stems and some of them were just sort of like this thick and there's me with the handsaw and I was completely on my own for four or five hours cutting down bits of hazel and processing them to make stakes and binders and firewood and putting them into these different piles and most of the time I'm listening to podcasts and audiobooks and things during this day I didn't have anything else I was just and I found myself talking to each bit of wood saying well, what do you want to be a stake or do you want to be a binder and oh you know and just <laughs> <laughs> and feeling just so part of this um of this sort of place and um and i've i've been volunteering with the wildlife trust for the past few years now and every time that i'm out doing something sort of physical outside there is this just i'm in flow and it it is just wonderful so anyone who wants to volunteer in the united kingdom the wildlife trust <laughs> very good place to start it is Definitely, it is yeah. it is wonderful and i think those those three those three suggestions they they make such absolute sense um and you know all we need is political will um and that's the that's as often the the sticking point isn't it mm. yeah i think you know we get glimpses of hope i suppose so here in scotland at the last Holyrood election, four of the five parties, um, no prizes for guessing which one um, was the outlier, had universal basic income in their manifesto. Really? Uh, so that was a really positive thing. Um, you know, th there's a lot more talk about these things now than there has been for decades and decades, like the food uh, or food, nutrition, access to nature, and UBI. Mm. So I think, you know, it's better in terms of awareness. It's just that we, from awareness to action, I guess that's the stage we're at. Um, but, you know, I think, I think the more people hear about these things, the more they start thinking about them, um, then maybe we can start uh, convincing, you know, people in power to make, you know, to be a bit more bold about these things. You know, I mean, you know, the Green Party, I'm sure, would be would be, would be for all these things. Well, they're for UBI, and I know they're for, for good nutrition in the, in the environment as well. So um, I think that there is, there is hope, but um, we just have to keep banging the drum and, and articulating the case as much as we can. 
Well, Matt, this, is, this has been absolutely wonderful and fascinating and, and inspiring. I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to that you wanted to bring up. I'm aware that I've exceeded exceeded the um, agreed time by six minutes. So, uh, but I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to bring up or, or ways that people could find you, um, read you, um, just to flag that up at the um, at the end. Sure. So I'm at the University of Strathclyde, and. Uh, I'm in the history department, and uh, I'm very easy to find online. All I would say, I guess, in addition, is that if people are interested in exploring some of these ideas further, uh, you know, either as part of a course or just reading stuff, just get in touch with me. I'm happy to correspond. Thank you ever so much. And thank you so much for being on Shrink Rap Radio. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Cicero wrote, to be ignorant of what occurred before you were born is to remain always a child. And Winston Churchill said, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Professor Matthew Smith is certainly clear of both failings. I was astonished by his depth and breadth of knowledge and fascinated by how it sheds light on the current situation. The history of mental health care shows us both possible pitfalls and past successes, both of which we'd do well to learn from. His steps to easing the mental health crisis also seemed to me to be both sensible and achievable, had we only the political will. UBI might appear surprising, or it was to me initially, but when I think of not just the horrible stress of poverty, but also the way it impacts physical health, relationships and routes to healing, it makes complete sense. Nutritious food? Again, it can seem counterintuitive, but that's perhaps because we're so inclined to regard the mind as separate from the body. And access to nature. I know from my own experience how valuable that is. I hope the interview gives you food for thought. And thanks, as ever, to Dr. Dave for allowing me the airtime. Hello, fellow shrinkwrappers. I have a couple of questions for you. Do you think that Dave is doing a good job? Well, I do anyway. And uh, do you wish for him to continue producing these podcasts? I sure do. So, are you willing to support him? I just did. It's easy. Go to the Shrinkwrap Radio website, click Support on the top menu, select the amount you wish to contribute. If you have a PayPal account, enter your credentials. If you don't have a PayPal account, you can still do one-time donations by just entering your credit card details. PayPal will take care of the rest, David will be happy, and we will all get the benefit of his excellent guests and his well-honed interview skills. Now to my last question. When will you do it? Thank you, Sven, in Sweden. When indeed. Thank you for encouraging others to follow your excellent example. Time once again to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to Izzy and her guest, Professor Matthew Smith in Scotland, for bringing us this multidimensional and historical perspective on mental illness. My next interview will feature return guest clinical psychologist Dr. Keith Sutton 
on working with the oppositional child. Amazingly, that will be right after Christmas. So here's wishing you and yours a wonderful and meaningful holiday season and reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.